You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat mother of three, and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal. This week on Monster Talk, we talk with Dr. Brian Regal about his new book, Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and cryptozoology. It's an academic book about the history of the search for Sasquatch, yet not about Sasquatch. I like the book, and I enjoyed the interview. I hope you do too. But it does talk a lot about topics that monster hunters might find depressing. Is cryptozoology a pseudoscience? Is it a waste of time? Does real science care about monsters? Does science suppress the secret existence of mystery apes? Or has it simply withdrawn from the quest, smarting from hoax after hoax, but secretly hoping that someday the beast's corpse will hit the lab table? Tune in and find out. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith, and together with Ben Radford of Skeptical Inquirer magazine and Dr. Kieran Stolzno, a CSI research fellow and paranormal investigator, we examine monsters and their place in science and legend. In a moment, we'll hear an interview with Dr. Brian Regal. But first, I wanted to take a moment and talk about a few things that are going on with the show. Scheduling and running this show is a lot of work, but it's work I find immensely rewarding. We may be experimenting with the format a bit in the future, and you may hear some new voices behind the interview mics. It's my goal to keep the show fresh and to work hard to get more shows out per year. I've got some very interesting guests lined up and some thought-provoking topics. I do hope you'll enjoy the many things we're going to try, and that you'll let us know what you like and what you don't like. We try to be accessible, and on internet forums, Twitter, Facebook, and email, we try to respond to your feedback. We hope you will give our Facebook fan page a try. There you can find out what's happening between episodes, plus meet lots of other listeners and join them in complaining about the ridiculously random schedule of Monster Talk. Also, you can find out where our next public appearances will be, such as the upcoming Monster Investigations Workshop we'll be hosting at the Amazing Meeting in July. That's right. If you attend TAM and come on Thursday, July 14th, you could take a workshop on investigating monsters that features the entire cast of Monster Talk. Plus, 
I think there's going to be some other notable guests and whatnot. I don't know. Come on out, though. We're going to be there. We're talking about getting to shake hands with the trio who brought you the awful truth about how dangerous it is to be an amorous slug. Where else can you get content like that? Well, normally I would just say Monster Talk, but now apparently also Tam. So, I hope to see you there. Now on with the show. Monster Talk. All right. You want to talk about Brian Regal's new book? Yeah. So, Searching for Sasquatch, Crackpots, Eggheads, and Cryptozoology. (laughs) So, you know, a lot of these books from academic presses are um, expensive. Yes. Tell me about that, Mr. I'm in publishing. (laughs) Well, thank you for asking. As someone who has published with with a couple academic presses, most recently, of course, uh, the University of New Mexico Press, uh, which uh, published my book, Tracking the Chupacabra, uh, which is actually one of its best-selling um, uh, titles uh, for this for this uh, for this this season, which I'm ple- pleased about. Cool. Yes. Um, well, part of what happens, of course, it's the it's the economics of book publishing. Titles that come from academic presses, such as the one we're going to discuss today, I think I think it's the the Palmgrave Studies in the History of Science and Technology. Uh, is the name of the press. Um, oh, Paul, Paul Grave, yeah, Paul Grave McMillan, yeah, Paul Grave McMillan. Um, you know what? What happens is there's a bit of a trade-off there because the academic presses tend to be, of course, much more scholarly and academic, uh, and therefore they're much more reliable. Uh, but they don't necessarily have the commercial appeal or the the push behind it. You know that you would see uh, with a, with a major you know commercial marketer such as you know. Avon or, or, you know, HarperCollins or what have you. So uh, because they don't expect to sell as many books, they have to price them accordingly. Um, so they, they, they sort of they do the math on it and they figure, well, we can sell X many books, uh, you know, at this price. But if we don't think we're going to sell that many books, we need to recoup our expenses by by jacking up. Well, I don't want to say jacking up, but by <laughs> by increasing the price um, uh, on the titles to and cover so the price of the print run. Is what you're saying? So there, yes. there's some minimum price required for making a run of these hardcover books, and they have to guess on the expectations. Well, they have to they have to make a guess of how many they might sell, and then price them according to how much it will cost to cover that on the print run. That, that's exactly right, and, and you know, especially when you're talking about something with a title like you know, searching for Sasquatch. Uh, it, it's a great title, and it's you know, it's a fine book, but um, you know, the the book as it's presented, and I'm looking at it right now, it's an attractive book, but it's not necessarily you know going to be a, a New York Times bestseller, no matter what you do with it. So that's that's sort of thing. But it's funny because I'm mean, looking at it; is a fantastic book. Having read it, it's um, it's very academic in the 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 tone of the book is very academic. It's got references, and the references aren't to monster hunting books. They're to (laughs) actual published articles and other things. Or or worse yet, the the references aren't to their friend's blog. Right. (laughs) Hey, I don't think that's hurt your book at all to be referencing my blog. I'm just saying... (laughs) Right, so the entry entry price was, was it 85, I think? Uh, I think 115, wasn't it? 203... $3,000. Three thousand uh, dollars. It was. It was. It's uh, fairly expensive. I'll check it right quick. We'll, we'll get it right. Amazon. Brian Regal. Amazon's. Hey, it was eighty-five dollars. It's on sale for sixty-eight at Amazon. There you go. I would like to read this book on a Kindle. 
Actually, you know, I have to say this is, uh, I, and I know your book just came out on a Kindle as well. Now, all your books are, are, or your two most recent books are both available on Kindle now. My yes, my my two most recent ones. Um, so love reading academic books on the Kindle because you can bookmark them and put notes in, share your notes with other people. It's fantastic. So cool, very fun. Uh, I have yeah. to, I, I have to use the old school method of a uh, of a uh, a mechanical pencil point zero five um, and writing in the margins. Yeah, and that's okay too. <laughs> but then, if you want to share them, you have to go photocopy your notes or give your book away. But the, I was going to say, searching for Sasquatch, uh, also very suitable for Kindle. Uh, so hopefully, he'll get that out uh, in yes. that. No pictures, unlike your uh, uh, two books, uh, which both have lots and lots of photos. But I think they look great on the Kindle. But his book has no photos whatsoever. So right, and in fact, that's kind of a. I, I did notice that, and I was somewhat disappointed. Um, I, I don't know whether that was a publisher's decision or he just couldn't come up with anything for it. But I mean, there's, I, I, I don't know. It'd be, it'd be interesting to find out why there were no pictures in it. Yeah, we could ask that. Uh, say, why no pictures, <laughs> Mister Regal? <laughs> I want pictures, Mister Regal. Well, I, I guess it's uh, kind of in keeping with Bigfoot, right? Right. Exactly. No, that's that's good. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Zing. Monster dog. So, yeah. oh, before good, we get started, you? oh, good. So, let's, I want to say thanks for coming back and joining us again. No problem. My pleasure. All right. I'll do an intro here. And uh, as you may recall, the show is recorded and we do edit it. So if you screw something up, we can you know redo it or whatever. So okay. I'll, I'll try not to use any bad language. Yeah. That, well, no, we're we can beep that out. Uh, no, no, that's fine. Yeah, we, we like, like it, we it's, it's good for the ratings. If you want to do a little nudity, we that's okay too. Uh, <laughs> no, you don't want that. <laughs> it's not what I want, Brian. It's what the listeners want. It's what the people, what the people want. <laughs> whatever the whatever the market demands, that's what we'll give them. Right. Very good. <laughs> Brian Regal is an assistant professor for the history of science, technology, and medicine in the Department of History at Keene University. He's a return guest, having joined us before on our very first skeptic-sponsored episode to discuss werewolves and Charles Darwin. And now he's back as the author of the new book, Searching for Sasquatch. Crackpots, eggheads, and cryptozoology. All right. So, Brian, your book title sounds somewhat confrontational, which seems at odds with the academic historical tone of the text inside it. So what does that title mean to you? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that, this is um, my original plan for the title was to call it Crackpots and Eggheads, colon, uh, Amateurs, professionals, and cryptozoology, but the the good people at uh, Paul Grave McMillan thought that this would be a better title, so uh, so I went with that. But yeah, it's it is it is a little on the controversial side, and I've already been uh, I, I was told before the book went into production that people would be upset with this, but I I forged ahead anyway because I thought it was important, uh, and I and I don't use those terms in a, a negative. Uh, confrontational way. They're actually sort of, uh, I use it in, a, in, in an endearing kind of way. Uh, crackpots, of course, being amateur naturalists, monster enthusiasts, and the eggheads being uh, professional scientists. I actually got the terms from uh, Rennie DeHinden and Ivan Sanderson, so I didn't actually make them up. I, uh, when I was doing the research for this book, uh, which took me, this is the end of a five-year research project, uh, when I was working on this, uh, when I began working on it, and I was reading all these original texts 
and letters and diaries and things. And I came across these terms, uh, and all I thought was jackpot. There's my title right there, Crackpots and Eggheads. <laughs> there you go. So that's what I went with. And uh, so, Brian, how is this book uh, different from a book about the subject of cryptozoology in general? Well, this is really a history. I, I think it's the... It's the first time, uh, or, or, or I, if, I, if I may for a moment think, the best uh, history of cryptozoology, not cryptozoology broadly, but mostly the, the uh, part of cryptozoology that deals with man-like monsters, what I like to call anomalous primates. Uh, and what I did was, uh, I'm, I'm really not, I say this in the introduction, I'm really not interested, this book is not about proving whether Bigfoot does or doesn't exist. It's not a debunking book, uh, but it's not sort of a hagiography hey either. Uh, I wanted to do a scholarly analysis of what I thought was a really interesting field uh, and see if I could trace where this comes from, how, it, how does it begin. And at the heart of it is the, the crackpots and eggheads concept is the relationship between amateur naturalists and professional scientists and how they have interacted and sometimes come to blows, sometimes work together uh, in order to create a new field or at least attempt to create a new field of scientific study. Well, Brian, I was going to say, uh, having read your book, it was really cool for me to to see uh, sort of a broader illustrations of many of the people that I had I had read about, you know, everybody from Krantz to DeHinden to Tom Slick and all that. So it was, it was I thought one of the things that your book did really well was sort of uh, flesh out these, these other sort of dry names uh, in the history of cryptozoology. Right. Um, so in, in, your, in your book, you talk about a lot of the leaders of the field. Which of those uh, really stood out uh, to you as being the most interesting when you were researching the book? Well, that's, uh, that's part of the most interesting aspect of this. The book focuses on Grover Krantz, uh, and that's partly because I think he's an important figure in the story, of the of the growth of cryptozoology, but also quite frankly for the for the simple material fact that so much of his material, his letters and diaries and and, and correspondence are available. Uh, the the Krantz papers are at the Smithsonian at the National Anthropological Archive, and when I'm a professional historian, and when I do start a project on someone or or some topic, the first thing I ask is where are the letters. Where are the correspondence? Where are those inside discussions? Where are the notebooks? Uh, where are the copies uh, where, where people scrawled sort of wacky marginalia in there? That's what I look for. And, well, a few people had tried to do this on a limited basis before. No one had ever really done uh, or, or attempted to do a major survey of, of these correspondences. And so that's how Krantz, uh, that's part of the reason why Krantz sort of comes to the to the four, but the most disappointing for me, the most disappointing part of this project was Rennie DeHinden, who is an incredibly interesting character. Uh, unfortunately, his papers are not as available as Krantz's were. What I, my original idea was to run a to run a parallel biography of hmm. Krantz and DeHinden, uh, but as I said, the DeHinden papers are out there. Uh, but they are in collections and they're in places which I tried to get access to but was, un, was unable to. And so he, there is a good bit of material on him available through other people's collections. Uh, and so I was able to flesh out something of, his, uh, of him as a person, but not as much as I would like to have. 
And I think you said that, that most of Krantz's papers are at the Smithsonian, right? Right. If I'm not mistaken, Krantz himself is is at the Smithsonian. I, I think yes, I saw him his, his dog. He, uh, yeah. he left his body to, uh, to the Smithsonian along with his dog, Clyde. Uh, and uh, there he's on display. His, his, he wanted his um, he wanted his skeleton articulated, and, along with the dog, and put on display, uh, mimicking a photograph uh, of him and his dog. And that's what happened. That's, yeah, that was yeah, that was odd. I, last time I was in in Washington D.C., I was there, and I was just looking at it, and I was like. Grover Krantz. Where have I heard the name? Like, is that him? And and <laughs> I it was in it because I was sitting there guy. looking at it. Yeah, and it was and then it was interesting because I I think I was the only person in the room. There were probably a couple dozen people there who who knew you know about his 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 connection to Bigfoot because it was right. actually not mentioned on the display. Right. And, um, yeah, well, it's an and, interesting mounting of of a human and a dog skeleton together. That's really what's most interesting, I think. He had bad teeth, by the way. I, anyway. say, <laughs> I just saw that actually covered on an online magazine. Um, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you can actually see the, uh, the, the photo that it's based on and the actual display and a really nice article explaining how it came to be that Grover Krantz was. Right. Was well, I'm, so. I'm not sure if the dog is actually his first dog, Clyde. It might be. I've seen some conflicting uh, descriptions where it said it was Clyde, and uh, I saw some others where it said no, it was a later dog. Um, but it's an Irish wolfhound, and the, the dog Clyde was probably his best friend in his whole life. Uh, it's a really interesting relationship, and in the book, I, I argue somewhat that um, Clyde dies around the time that Krantz really sort of be get, becomes immersed in Bigfoot studies, uh, almost to the point where I think that, you know, there was something where he was so attached to this dog and had lost it, now he's going to turn those feelings onto this this creature in the woods. Okay, so your coverage of Krantz in the book is really interesting. And at one point you quote him as saying, nobody outclasses me, at least not since Leonardo da Vinci. Right. Right. Is is it possible that uh, egoism could have put blinders on him when it came to uh, examining disconfirmatory evidence to his theories? Yeah. What's What's interesting about him? One of the things which is interesting about him is that he early on, uh, by the mid seventies, I think, uh, he has become convinced that Bigfoot's real, and he thinks that it's real because of evidence which to his uh, his mind. He's a trained paleoanthropologist. Uh, I mean, he goes to he, he goes to UCAL Berkeley, which is you know a center and still is a center, a major center of of anthropological paleoanthropological uh, research. So he he is schooled in a in a powerful uh, academic tradition. He's not an amateur by any sense of the you know stretch of the imagination. Uh, he's a professional scientist, and he, to his mind, he sees evidence which clinches it for him. Uh, particularly the Bosberg prints, the cripple footprints, and then the the dermal ridges, and then some other things as well. And once he's made that decision, you know he he just moves forward, and he really doesn't take much. Uh, into consideration, I mean, he doesn't believe every single thing he sees. He understands that there's a lot of hoaxing out there and a lot of misidentification, but he thinks there is enough evidence that proves these creatures are real. And he, no- he never really looks back. And so was he ever really challenged by his colleagues? 
Well, not really. And that's partly because most of his colleagues don't believe in anything he's doing. Uh, he's mostly dismissed by the mainstream. They were being indulgent of him to some extent, or just yeah, ignoring well, what he was um, doing. Some of the some of the people uh, who worked in the department at Washington State University, the, the anthropology department, had said essentially that, well, you know, Grover's a really good guy and he's a smart guy and all, uh, but we just sort of, as you said, we just sort of indulge him on this and we don't really. Yeah. Uh, we don't really believe this is anything that's there, but he does other good work, so we're willing to overlook the Sasquatch stuff. Yeah. And he never receives any sort of grants or research mm-hmm. money for the Sasquatch work. He pays for all of it out of his own pocket. And uh, there are times where he doesn't get promoted right away. I mean, he eventually makes full professor, but that's after 20 years. That's a long time to wait uh, to become a full professor. And part uh, the reason that he did finally, right before he retired, uh, part of the reason why he did get uh, promoted was that a, uh, a young scientist named John Bodley, who started after him, a couple of years after him, they had become friends. Uh, and Bodley eventually rose to the rank, uh, became chair of the department, and he really pushed in the in the mid-90s to get uh, Kratz promoted and managed to get it to squeak by, and so he did get promoted. But had Bodley not put in that effort, uh, Kranz would have finished out his days in his, as an associate, not a full professor. Well, Brent, um, I'm just realizing that uh, that many of these names are familiar to to the four of us, but n- maybe not necessarily to our listeners. So I'm wondering if you could if you could sort of sketch out or paint a picture of uh, Grover Kranz and DeHinden and maybe uh, Sanderson, uh, just you know, in in a couple paragraphs, just just for people who aren't familiar with them. Uh, Kranz was a uh, again, he was a, a trained paleoanthropologist, uh, PhD in human evolution studies, uh, who uh, joined the the faculty of Washington State University in 1968, and he was primarily doing work on on Homo erectus fossils, and he had been intrigued by the idea of Bigfoot and Sasquatch for some years, and had kind of informally been keeping up on it and collecting information. And then in 1969, there is a sighting in a, a tiny little town called Bosburg, Washington, up near the Canadian border. And since the the campus or the the University of uh, the Washington State University is at Pullman, Washington, not very far from there, he over the over the Thanksgiving holiday, he jumps in his car and he drives up there to investigate, and he sees what come to be known as the Cripplefoot tracks. And these were Bigfoot tracks that had some strange kind of anatomical anomalies to them. Uh, and it looked to him like the, one of the creature's feet had been broken at one point and healed badly. And he had, been, he had done a lot of work on human locomotion and fossil human locomotion and, and foot structure, foot morphology. And when he looked at these cripple foot tracks, in his mind he said no one could possibly hoax this. Uh, you, mm-hmm. No one would know to hoax this in the way that it was hoaxed, that he, or the, the way that it looked. And so he said the only other explanation is that it's real. And he becomes a convinced believer that these creatures are real, and he spends the rest of his 30-plus year career trying uh, unsuccessfully to prove they're real and to convince his colleagues that they're real. His primary nemesis uh, was a Swiss-Canadian named René de Hinden, who had been uh, born in Switzerland, uh, had been deposited in an orphanage for a while, 
managed to le- get out of the orphanage, was saw a series of work farms as a kid. Uh, when he came of age, he went off on his own, wandered around post-war Europe for a little while, and eventually immigrated to Canada. And he winds up in British Columbia. And uh, he has very little formal education, yet he's a very naturally intelligent guy. And he sees reports of Sasquatch, which are just starting to, to sort of get some media play uh, in the 1950s. And he becomes fascinated by it, and he determines to go find out what this thing is. And where Krantz has a lot of formal academic schooling, uh, the Hinden has none. And so these two guys sort of go off on a parallel journey. Uh, I, I, in the book, I, call, I refer to the Hinden as the anti-Krantz. Uh, you know, he has no actual scientific training, but he's deeply passionate about this, and they form this kind of love-hate relationship that takes them through the rest of their lives. Uh, the Hinden, uh, or Krantz dies, I think, a year after the Hinden does, um, and so that sort of makes up the basis of the book. And then there's, there, there's other characters like Ivan Sanderson, who was a Scots uh, naturalist, uh, Cambridge trained. He actually has an undergraduate degree in biology, and he too becomes fascinated by these things. And he comes to America um, and decides to track down uh, track down these creatures. He's a he's a professional um, science journalist. He, he does a lot of writing. Uh, Sanderson is never an academic. Uh, and which is part of his uh, resentment of the academic world because he thought he always should have been an academic, but he spends his life hustling uh, by writing articles and things, a lot of famous articles uh, that are well-known in the field. And um, he, too, will uh, you know, spend his life trying to prove these creatures are real. In particular, I thought you did a good job of painting Ivan uh, Sanderson as kind of a tragic figure uh, who gets on this sort of quest to find something that he may never be able to prove. Did you get the impression that at the end of his life he still believed sincerely that these mystery apes were still out there? Oh, I think they all did. I don't think any of them ever really lost uh, belief that these creatures were real. I wanted so bad for Ivan Sanderson to have kind of like a a paranormal wild kingdom, you know, <laughs> not paranormal, uh-huh. but, you know, a cryptozoological wild kingdom show. But right. He, he seems well, such I'm a, sure he wanted to. Yeah, <laughs> he just comes across as that sort of '50s uh, explorer with the you know British accent, putting on the khakis and the pith helmet, and out he goes. Sure, yeah, uh, <laughs> safari yeah. suit, right? <laughs> well, all these guys were real characters, uh, and and not in a kind of artificial way, but genuine characters, genuinely unusual, interesting people. So, Brian, one of the most commonly heard claims about cryptozoology is that scientists ignore the arguments and evidence mm-hmm. and dismiss Bigfoot out of hand. Yet your book seems to debunk that myth as you provide many examples of scientists who did take Bigfoot seriously. Could you talk about that a bit for us? Oh, sure. Um, one of the other major threads in my book is the w- within, within history, we have this notion of the heroic narrative or the grand narrative, or the meta-narrative, these kind of big ideas, big statements that cover broad fields. Uh, and so, you know, if you want to know about something, that sort of a conventional wisdom says, this field is about that. And the, the heroic narrative of monster hunting, certainly in the 20th century, was that these amateur naturalists 
they're the ones who are really passionate about this, and they go around and they and they they do lots of research, and they go out into the field, and they they try to they fight against the odds to bring the knowledge of these creatures to the public, and you have the scientists who sort of reject all of this out of hand and say, no, this is silly, and and uh, you know these these. These monster hunters are just sort of crackpots who don't know what they're doing. They're just running around the woods, and so we dismiss whatever they say. And the, the reality here uh, is that it's not really quite that easy. Uh, there were scientists, and still are, uh, even today, uh, who believe these creatures are real and work to try to uh, prove that. They, they worked as hard to prove these things real and believed as much as any of the amateurs did. And so this notion that you can draw this nice straight line with you know, believers and amateurs on one side and non-believers and professional scientists and the mainstream on the other just doesn't really hold up. In, uh, in your book, you talk uh, a fair amount about the, uh, the Russian and the Soviet cryptozoologists who were also mm-hmm. interested in, in, in the Yeti and all that. Um, was there any scientific collaboration going on among the, the Cold War rivals or what was the status on that? Yeah, well, there was. I mean, uh, the there, there's a whole tradition of monster hunting in Russia. Uh, the Almasti and the Almas uh, that uh, that are very Bigfoot-like creatures, and a similar kind of pattern developed over there, uh, where you have professional scientists and amateurs interested in this and tracking down information and and analyzing data. Uh, the one of the big differences between the uh, the Americans or the Westerners, not just Americans, but the the Westerners and the and the Russians, is that the Russians actually received some state support early on. There was actually a, a snowman commission in Russia in the 1950s because there had been some sightings uh, by several respected scientists in in Soviet Russia, and so as a way of getting at the bottom of this, the, the, the Russian government actually put together a snowman commission to investigate the, the phenomena and, and uh, to support uh, some expeditions into the Pamir Mountains. It doesn't last that long because after, after one or two expeditions and they don't find anything, uh, the, the Russian government essentially turns their back on it and says, well, that was a big waste of time. And mm-hmm. the snowman commission is, is, is decommissioned and that sort of leaves the the monster enthusiasts on their own to to uh, go to their own devices. And that never really happens here. Uh, there's really never any official state or academic support for monster hunting in America. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off 
at MVMT.com. Yeah, we didn't need it. We had uh, millionaire Tom Slick. Right, yeah. Well, there was a benefactor <laughs> involved. The, uh, the, the enigmatic Texas oil millionaire Tom Slick, who actually supports, uh, puts up the money for a number of expeditions in Asia to find the Yeti and here in the States to find Bigfoot. And so probably would have gone on supporting this had he not died tragically young in a plane crash. So uh, just so basically the, the, the claim that, uh, again, we sort of touched on this before, but the claim that, that I sometimes hear that the reason we haven't found better evidence for Bigfoot, for example, is because there's no money behind it or there's no, no, no real effort. Uh, it doesn't sound like that's quite true. Well, there, there has been money behind it. And, and now today in the early 21st century, you have a number of uh, television shows and TV series that, that pump money into the search. Okay. With the same results. So there's already this sort of romanticized view of the search for Yeti. You've got uh, skilled mountain climbers coming back with stories. You've got this millionaire. Uh, there's a story about Jimmy Stewart being involved in stealing right, Yeti yeah. parts. Your book was the first to ever inform me about the involvement of the CIA in the search for the Yeti. Can you talk about oh, yeah. that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not actually the first person to talk about this. Uh, Lauren Coleman has actually done some work. Sorry, Lauren. But, yeah. <laughs> but, there, but there is some really interesting, intriguing uh, intelligence connections here. Uh, a number of the uh, what we might call the Golden Age monster hunters, Ivan Sanderson, uh, George Agagino and um, Carlton Kuhn. Uh, <laughs> they all had intelligence backgrounds. Um, Agagino was an OSS agent in the Far East. Uh, Kuhn was an OSS agent in North Africa. And it, supposedly Ivan Sanderson had British intelligence, British naval intelligence connections. Uh, there had been accusations uh, that um, Peter Byrne the uh, another one of the grand old men uh, of, of of monster hunting that he had intelligence connections. It's been it's been alleged that Tom Slick had CIA connections, and um, that they were contacted, uh, and that when they, especially in the Asia phase, uh, because you have to remember the sort of geopolitical situation that's going on in the 1950s, Tibet and Nepal are right there up next to China wedged in between India, which was still part of the British Empire, and you know the Chinese Revolution had taken place, and they had invaded Tibet, and things were, you know, were, were really hopping over there. And in the middle of it, there's a monster. And so this is an excuse for, for uh, Westerners to come looking for this thing. And the Chinese, for example, and the Russians were both convinced that all these guys were spies, uh, the, the guys on the western side were convinced that all the Russians who were running around were spies. Everybody seems to have been spying on everybody else. Uh, Life magazine was involved. And uh, it, while I was never able to actually prove one way or another what was happening, it's clear that there was some western intelligence involvement in the Tibet-Nepal Yeti search. So these are Bigfoot conspiracy theories. In a sense. Well, I'm not sure if it really was a conspiracy theory in that it has no basis. I think it does have some basis. I think what happened is these guys had – there's two things going on. You have this group of guys who are genuinely interested in going to 
to Central Asia and proving once and for all that the Yeti exists, they just happen to have intelligence connections and are going to a place where in the 1950s, the U.S. government, the British government, uh, the government of India would be very interested to find out what's going on along the Tibet-China border. And so these these elements kind of collide in, in an almost comical way. There's this odd Russian named Lasanovich who is living in Nepal who wants to, when he hears about the existence of the Yeti, he, he, he wants to get nets in a cage and, and, and throw a net over the, over the Yeti and bring him back alive. And Carlton Kuhn wants to do the same thing. And so you have all these guys running around, and they're all spying on each other. And in the end, they don't find anything. So if, so if the U.S. or the U.K. thought that they could get intelligence uh, on China out of these monster hunters, I don't think it really worked. And uh, how has the search for Bigfoot evolved over the decades in terms of who's looking for them and why and with what tools and methods? Yeah, well, that, that, that's a, an interesting evolution as well. You start off with these sort of elite monster hunters, uh, these individuals, lone individuals, the the guys running around looking for the Yeti in Nepal are are mostly uh, professional mountaineers, British mountaineers, and then you get some Americans in there. Uh, Peter Byrne, who's Irish, he's in there as well, and then you come you sh- action shifts back to uh, North America, Western Canada, Western United States, and then you you get guys like Randy DeHinden and John Green, a Canadian uh, journalist who gets very interested in all this, and then Tom Slick comes over, and he starts funneling money into the North America search, and he brings Peter Byrne with him, and then that's when Grover Krantz gets involved. But by, say, oh, the mid-1980s, that group... That, that sort of individual approach begins to wane. Uh, in Tibet, you had what I call the, the, the mountaineering approach. You had these big groups of people, which is the, the, the Yeti searches were modeled on traditional uh, mountain climbing uh, projects. We have lots of people, porters carrying, you know, like a long line, a very romantic scene of a long line of porters heading off into the distance, carrying boxes on their heads uh, as the the group of Western explorers up front leads everything. And that kind of dissipates. Uh, They try the expedition approach here in the States for a little while, but that doesn't really work out. And so what happens is it, it, it evolves into these sort of lone researchers, maybe in pairs, but never really in large groups, uh, moving around uh, the Pacific Northwest looking for these things. By the 1980s, a kind of new animal comes along, and that's the, that's the monster hunting group, and that's a kind of American invention, or American slash Canadian invention, where you have local people. The, the early guys, the golden age guys, they went wherever the evidence led them. They had to go to China, they went to China. They had to go to Tibet, they went to Tibet. Uh, they had to go to Canada, you know, wherever they went. But the, the, the local guys, which is sort of make up the bulk of monster hunters now, they tended to stay in their own neighborhoods and they would collect groups of like-minded individuals uh, and they would search for whatever monster was supposedly located in their area. Uh, and then by the end of 
the century, into the 21st century, you see a kind of resurgence of the elite monster hunter. Uh, and, and English cryptozoologists sort of come back to the forefront. Uh, and you have individuals like, say, Richard Freeman, uh, who travels the world in search of cryptids. Uh, and they're, they're sort of generalists where the, on the American side now, uh, you have people who look just for Bigfoot. Uh, and in the English uh, tradition, you have cryptozoologists who look for Loch Ness Monster or, or Mokilian Bembe or Chupacabra or the Orang Pendek. They sort of they go where the monsters lead them. And that's sort of at the state we're at now. You have these kind of elite, globe-trotting uh, cryptozoologists, and then you have the local groups looking for just their particular monster in their particular neighborhood. And so where do you think that that's going to lead us? I mean, you, do you think that the golden age of, the, uh, of this, this sort of investigation has died along with uh, Krantz and Slick and, and Renee, or do you think that there's going to be a resurgence? Or what do you think it'll look like you know, in 20 or 50 years? Well, most of, the, most of the elite, what I call the elite monster hunters today, are they're not quite the, I mean, they're certainly characters, but they're not quite the flamboyant characters like the Ivan Sandersons and the Rennie DeHindens. Uh, and I mean that in a good way. I don't mean to denigrate them. There's, there's several people doing really good work now. Uh, and, and if anybody's going to find this, you know, prove this, these things to be real, it'll be them. Uh, but they, they are of a, different, of a different style, I guess, than the, well, I, than the Golden Age guys. Right, but I guess what I meant was not so much the, the characters that are looking for them, but um, but in terms of uh, where you think it'll be. I mean, do you think that in 20 years or 100 years people will still be looking for Bigfoot? Do you think that it'll eventually be abandoned if there's no evidence, or what do you think is going to happen with that? Well, that's a you know that's prophecy is not really my area, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I you know who knows? I mean, if if nothing is ever found then it may very well just sort of gradually peter out and and we'll find some other odd thing to look for. Uh, but if some of these things ever do turn up to be real, I think that'll give uh, you know, a real resurgence, a real shot in the arm. I think if somebody brought in a Bigfoot carcass tomorrow, uh, there'd be a huge resurgence in individuals. The, the groups that currently exist would would expand and get even more... Um, active, and I think a lot more people would get involved in it. Well, one of the things that jumps out to my mind, you know, just sort of comparing over the history of Bigfoot research uh, specifically is, of course, the, the evolving technology. Uh, you have the what remains to be the, the, the best evidence uh, by, many, by many people's uh, estimation of the Patterson film, which, of course, was shot in 67. Um, and yet these days, you know, cameras are, are lighter than ever before. They're better than ever before. And so, you know, today's cryptozoologists and monster hunters uh, have uh, far better technology at their disposal. Uh, so you would think that that, that, would, that would influence the search, right? You would think. I mean, the, the, just as you said, I mean, there's all this technology available, small handheld cameras which give really high-quality footage, yet we still... Uh, I mean, just recently, I think last month, there was some 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 really laughably fake footage came out of a of a supposed Bigfoot crossing a highway somewhere uh, in the in the rural south. And I mean, it's it, it's all fuzzy and blurry. Uh, you know, if you can't in in the early 21st century with all this high tech gadgetry, if you can't get a clear picture of this thing when it's 20 feet away from you, it, you know, we never will. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> 
Yeah, that. Yeah. Well, you know, we, when we had you on before, you talked about the 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 way that um, the theory of evolution kind of got rid of werewolves, um, right? So, well, contributed not all. Not well, all true, true. Contributed to the demise of well, as a plausible scenario, right? So, um, you know, that makes perfect sense. Of course, I mean, you know, history is not prognostication. You know, uh, that it's it's looking back, not looking forward. I mean, you can make conclusions. I'm not sure. Maybe it's wrong to even ask you how things are going to turn out. I, I, I'm interested to see myself. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, one, I'll give you an example. Like some arguments just stay around forever, right? Um, one is uh, Krantz was uh, popular, or he, he Krantz liked to say that uh, you never found the bones of large animals in the forest, um, which uh, Ben and I uh, looked into, and it turns out you do. Um, and it was <laughs> what? Um, yeah, yeah, I know. I, it was just interesting. Krantz had some interesting positions. They all did, and 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 these these characters they they've done such an interesting job of of making um, high drama out of uh, the search for an animal in the way that some real legitimate scientists looking for uh, lizards won't get. You know, <laughs> you don't get front page. Right. For that kind of thing, right? Sure. Yeah. There's no question there. I'm just making comments. Anyway, uh, but speaking of a big events that did take place, did get a lot of coverage, um, and things that come up again in, in conversation. The Minnesota Iceman is is mm-hmm. a big case. Now we've talked about it in an entire show on the Minnesota Iceman. It's a, it's a long, it's a complex story, and we don't have to recount the whole thing here. But in your take on things, what did you think the biggest lesson for the cryptozoology field was from that whole fiasco? Well, one of the things that I, I, I do go on at length about the Minnesota Iceman in the book and looking at in particular how the Smithsonian Institution reacted to it. Uh, and, and this is another example of, of this idea that there were scientists who were very interested in this. Uh, when... When Ivan Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans, the, the Belgian cryptozoologist, when they hear about the Iceman, they go and look at it. And they, they, they look at it, they see it, they take some pictures, they, they draw it, and they start telling people about it. And a number of people who had been sort of tangentially involved in the Yeti period, they're now at the Smithsonian. People like Dylan Ripley, uh, who had been an ornithologist, who had, had, who had also been an OSS man, and an Asia specialist, he had been involved in in the in the Yeti hunt. He's now the president of the Smithsonian. And John Napier, who had also been involved in the Yeti stuff, wrote the first academic book on on anomalous primates. He's he's also working at at the Smithsonian. A number of other individuals uh, who who have Yeti Bigfoot connections are at the Smithsonian. And so they say, well, let's go find out about this. And the Smithsonian rallies the energy of the federal government to go and find this thing. And they say, if it's there, we're going to get it, we're going to bring it back here, and we're going to study it, and that's going to be that. And they're very excited about it, and there is a whole string of internal memos. You see, this is the advantage of the historical approach when you, when you take this position of go look for the paperwork. Uh, at the Smithsonian, there's a, there's a whole pile of memos and inter-office letters and correspondences where the Smithsonian is a, a beehive of activity and anticipation over the Minnesota Iceman. They think they're on the verge of finding a real uh, creature. And 
they finally just, just decide to go to their, they're working through Ivan Sanderson because he's made connections with Frank Hansen, the guy who has the Iceman. And Dylan Ripley, the, the president of the secretary of the Smithsonian, says, uh, I'm just going to go to the source. And he just calls Frank Hansen and he says, uh, dude, you know, we want to see this thing. Uh, we'll pay you for it. We'll give you credit for it. And Hansen immediately starts backpedaling like crazy. And say, uh, uh, well, uh, 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 I don't have it anymore. It's gone. All I have is a fake. And and so eventually, what happens is they, the the guys at the Smithsonian decide, though, this thing is a fake. We got fooled. Uh, it's a carnival trick that looks really good, but it's not what we think it is. And so they're going to give up on it. And and that is, I use that story as an example of of why scientists are often. And, and academic institutions are so hesitant to get involved in monster hunting because they want facts. They want evidence. Scholars want the goods. They don't want stories. They don't want you know bad video. They want concrete facts. And there were lots and lots, and still are, uh, scientists and other scholars who were perfectly willing to accept these creatures as real, but they wanted to see the facts. And every time they got a fact into a corner, they found out that it was a hoax. And, you know, that, that can only happen so many times before people decide, you know, I'm not going to, I've spent, you know, an individual might say, I, I spent 20 years getting my position. I'm not going to risk it by endorsing one of these things. And then two months later, find out it's a fake. Mm-hmm. And so when, when cryptozoologists complain about how mainstream science won't support what they're doing, this is the reason. Because you can't just bring them nonsense. You have to bring them facts. I know plenty of paleoanthropologists who would kill to get a chance to examine a Bigfoot carcass. They would love it. They, they, they look forward to it with great anticipation. Uh, but no one's ever bought them one. I, I, th- I think that make, you make a great point with that, and I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're pointing that out. Uh, one other quick question about the Minnesota Iceman. Is there anybody today, even today, that you know of that still believes it was real? You know, it's one of those things where it was so close. You know, so many people got so excited that this was going to be it, and then it turned out to be nothing. Um, I'm sure there are still people around who, who think it. It was real. Okay. I, I just didn't know if there's any prominent people. Yeah, not that I'm aware of, but that doesn't mean there aren't any out there. So, Brian, what are the main arguments for and against cryptozoology as a legitimate science? Well, I guess part of the reason when, when cryptozoologists are asked about this, they often put forward a number of examples, uh, things like the Okapi uh, the, a, a kind of uh, a kind of antelope uh, with long horns from Africa and, and a very interesting striped body pattern, and of course the the, the megamouth shark and the perennial cryptozoology showstopper, the coelacanth. And they say, well, here are examples of animals which were not were either thought to not exist or were known only from the fossil record, and then bada boom, bada bing, bada bam, they find live ones. The problem with that argument is that cryptozoology had no part in the discovery of those animals. They were all discovered by accident by non-cryptozoologists. The basic definition of what a cryptid is, is a creature which is a folkloric creature. It's known from folklore. There are local legends or stories or whatever that these things exist. And what you do is you go out and you try to find out whether these stories had basis in reality. 
the problem with the okapi and the, uh, the megamouth shark and the coelacanth, just to name a few examples, is they're not really mythological creatures. They were essentially unknown completely before they were found. So there really was no cryptozoological aspect. Now, the okapi, I might be wrong on. The, the okapi may have had some Western folklore about it, uh, but certainly not the megamouth shark or the, or the coelacanth. They were just discovered. It's one day somebody comes around the corner and bing, there it is. Uh, you know, creatures that no one even suspected were there. Cryptids are creatures which are suspected of being there, but which have not yet been proven. And have any cryptozoologists ever, uh, they ever responded to that uh, observation? Not that I'm aware of. But the, the, the pro part of the story is that there are creatures undoubtedly out there that we don't know of. Uh, and very, very little time goes by when new organisms are discovered all the time. Uh, insects and birds and flowers and, and even fairly large-ish animals are still discovered on a fairly regular basis. Uh, but nobody gets really quite work, worked up about them because they don't usually have a popular mythological aspect to them. I have a question about your book in general. Uh, there's, there's one thing that was missing from its uh, 248 pages. Uh, there's lots of references, there's lots of notes, uh, but there are no illustrations or photographs. Can you explain what that <laughs> That's is? That's what everybody complains about. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and here it is again. This thing together. Oh, man, there's no pictures. It's not a coffee table book. <laughs> is that your defense? It's not a coffee table book? Yeah. Well, the, 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 the actual answer to that question is I, I, there were lots of pictures I wanted to use. Uh, I found a lot of really cool unknown pictures of Grover Krantz um, at, that the Smithsonian has, and I found some other things. But there was a certain cost factor that uh, the publishers didn't want to pay for the, the, pay for the rights to use them. Uh, the image that's on the cover is from my own collection. That's from a um, Bickerstaff's Boston Almanac from the 1780s, uh, a, a drawing which looks for all the world like Bigfoot, but it's actually a kind of crude copy of a famous illustration um, from the British, the, the pioneering British uh, primatologist Edward Tyson in his book uh, Anatomy of the Pygmies. But when I saw it, I said, "Oh, that's I gotta I gotta have that," and so we put it on the cover. Okay, because well, we had I'll, to pay for it. I'll I'll forgive you for the for the uh, for the lack of illustrations because it is it is a damn fine book. But I I, I, I wish appreciate it. I, I wish you had some uh, some art in there. Maybe maybe the second edition. Well, if you do a sequel, I, I have some really good clear pictures of Bigfoot if you need them. So. Okay, great, great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, Ben's and not used n- to books without pictures. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, and and there were a number of people who originally were going to let me use uh, photographs and artwork, but then changed their minds. So well, okay, so we've talked a lot about the the people. Uh, we've talked a lot about um, the history. What about, in particular, the skeptics? Since this is kind of a show by skeptics, you talk a lot about the position that skeptics take uh, on each of these people's work, uh, and particularly in, in the Patterson case, for example, you talk about when Greg Long's book came out, how the skeptics uh, dealt with that. Can you talk a little bit about how skepticism has informed or impacted uh, the field of cryptozoology? Well, I guess it's the, you know, it's the thing which you fight against. It's the thing which cryptozoology fights against is skepticism. And it's, a, it's sort of a, a tired cliche now, but I think the, the only way that that skepticism is really going to change in any way is you have to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that these things are real. You have to bring in a body, live or dead, and that's the only way... We're going to prove that these are real. It's the only way people will begin to believe them. I mean, I know that's a bit pedestrian, but there you are. 
<laughs> all, all the photographs in the world are not going to are not going to prove anything. You're not going to convince skeptics. You have to bring in some actual physical body parts. And you don't really need that much. I mean, the Gigantopithecus, which is the, the animal that Krantz believed that Bigfoot evolved from, uh, is really known by just a, a very few pieces, no postcranial material. It's just a few jaws and teeth. Yet it's completely accepted by the paleoanthropological community as having existed. You know, having known about uh, Roger Patterson and his film, and, and reading both Greg Long's book and your stuff as well, um, it, it's my impression that uh, Roger Patterson was kind of a dick. Is that your impression? Sort of. Um, I'm not sure if he was in, uh, uh, you know, an angel or an ape, but he. He wanted to succeed in in Hollywood. He wanted to succeed in some way. Uh, he was born into a rural background, had spent time, had joined the U.S. Army, had gone overseas, seen a bit of the world, and he wanted to expand his life beyond the fairly narrow confines of what he had been born into. He was a, he was a man with a lot of ambition. And he winds up with this film, and he thinks that is going to sort of take him where he wants to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that attracted me to this whole field is that these are all tragic guys. Uh, I, I, in, in all my writing, from my first book on, I've always been attracted to tragic characters, people who try to prove something that everyone else says can't be proved or, or to show something is there that everyone else says is not there. And that's why, I, that's why I start the book off with the line that this is a story about dreams that don't come true. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all guys who, and some women too, who put their whole lives into this thing and put all their money down on one throw of the dice and came up, what's the bad one, Snake Eyes? Is Snake Eyes the bad one? Whatever the bad one is. Um, and yet, despite everyone telling them that, that what they're doing is a waste of time, that they're, they're, they're chasing after something which is not there, they don't care. They just plow forward anyway. They are so committed to this. They're so wanting to do this. And in the end, they fail. Uh, there is a very popular kind of uh, plot device or narrative in storytelling where you have the, the hero, the scientist, who spends his life trying to prove that this thing or that thing doesn't exist, and they're, they're ridiculed and they're... And they're uh, told that they're crackpots and they're crazy and they're this and they're that. And on their deathbed, they're lying there. And, and just before they take their last breath, some young acolyte comes bursting in saying, Professor, they found it. You were right all along. Now everyone knows you were right. And then, ugh, the guy dies happy. But this is a story where these guys were literally on their deathbeds. And no one comes bursting in. No one cares. It never gets yeah. proven. They go to their graves believing that these things were real, but, but knowing that no one believed them that they were real. We like to ask our guests every time. Uh, <laughs> we've only had two guests repeat so far, but uh, what's your favorite monster? My favorite? Oh, werewolves, obviously. Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> I didn't Duh. remember if we asked Obviously. you last time or not. Uh, we, t- we added that question in. Uh-huh. Uh, kind of Let's after. see if you said that last time, yeah, then. We'll go back and check our records. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're, yeah. The, they're the great tragic monsters. Sure. I mean, I don't think there are werewolves. I want to make that clear. Uh, I don't believe there are, actually are werewolves. But, you know, from a, from a mythological point of view, I, 
I always sort of sided with the werewolves, certainly you know, against the, the stinking vampires. They are getting a, a lot more um, hot uh, romance book action lately. Uh, yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot of teen <laughs> girls apparently like the idea of a big, muscled, hairy guy. Yeah, so maybe we should change our question to, uh, are you Team Jacob or, uh, <laughs> or Team Edward? <laughs> I, 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 I abstain on such a question. <laughs> so, it's not just teen girls, right, Blake? Right, right. No, 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 no. It's not. Uh, that, apparently it's also housewives. So uh, I, I noticed that and when Blake. I'm in the romance book. <laughs> and Blake. Okay, yes, yes. I, I, read, I read vampire romance yeah. and uh, – and werewolf. Well, I didn't know about that, but you did. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. So you nailed it. What? Okay. <laughs> she said, "All my, you know, I don't just do academia uh, with my monster research, right?" It's <laughs> pop culture. Anyway, well, well, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us again, Brian. Well, it was my pleasure. We'll, we'll cut out thank the, the, the unprofessional parts. <laughs> we'll cut out the stupidity. <laughs> I didn't really say that. <laughs> that's right. That's never right. in anywhere you want. All right, it's great talking to you. Thanks a lot. We'll put a Thank link you. in our show notes, and uh, hopefully you'll have great success with this. Great, and, I appreciate uh, the time. And, and again, thank you so much for being a part of our show. My pleasure. Uh, thanks a lot. All right. Bye see bye. ya. Bye. Monster Talk. Monster Talk is proud to be sponsored by Skeptic Magazine. Today's episode was about the history of the hunt for Sasquatch and featured Dr. Brian Regal discussing his newest book, Searching for Sasquatch a link to which will be in our show notes. I'm Blake Smith, and my co-hosts today were Ben Radford and Dr. Karen Stolzno. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you for listening. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. I'm going to have to buy a new scale. I got all excited last night. I, I got on the scale and it said I had weighed 10 pounds less. And I was like, fantastic. And, you know, I'm a, a skeptic. So I got off the scale and got back on again. And it said, you've lost 10 pounds. I was like, F- this is fantastic. And I got off again and got back on again. It says, you lost five pounds. And I'm like, F- you scale. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. 
And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.